Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Jeffrey Groman. Hey, how you doing, Charles? Doing great. Caleb Fornari. Hey, how's it going? Going great. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Go check out my new show, devinfluencers.com slash podcast. We have a special guest this week, and that is Brian D. Foy. Brian, now you're from your profile, it looks like you're a Pearl guy, but we're going to be talking about more DevOps website hijacking. Um, every time I say that, I see Jeffrey grin. So that, that's kind of his thing. So this should be really, really interesting. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. What in particular should people know about you other than that You've written like the Pearl books. Oh, that they probably don't need to know too much about me unless they're doing Pearl. I've done a little bit of stuff in the DevOps space, but mostly I'm writing. I am putting the books out, writing blogs, getting people up to speed with whatever's new in the language. And so this thing we're going to talk about today is actually sort of out of my my normal sphere of activity. I I hate system administration with a passion. I hate all that sort of stuff of tracking everything. I got into the writing business, so I didn't have to be a system administrator. But sometimes you're the only person around to do that sort of stuff. So it happens still. Yep, absolutely. So how did you wind up being in the middle of this particular issue? So let's let's go back a little ways. Pearl.com has been one of the main Pearl websites for a couple of decades. Uh, Tom Christensen is actually the domain owner and he ran this site as part of his training business. And then it turned into this community site where all sorts of people were publishing articles and that went on for a long time. Then somewhere in the 2000s, it sort of maybe took a little nap for a while. There's this other guy, Dave Farrell, who was running a site called Pearl Tricks doing the same sort of thing. And then he got interested in running Pearl.com. So he imported the site into GitHub so that all sorts of people could make changes. He set all this this stuff up and generate the site with some sort of modern framework. We're using Hugo, by the way. And it went on for a couple of years like that. And then I'm always glad to help people with any sort of thing they're doing. And so I wrote to him and said, hey, I, just tell me what you need. I'll, I'll help you out. And so I was doing that. And then he sent me a text message. Uh, I think this was like in late January. I have to look at my timeline and said, hey, uh, there's something weird with the domain. And I said, okay, someone will fix it. And I went to sleep and I woke <laughs> up and there was still a problem and no one was was there to fix it. Again, I don't own the domain. I'm not the registrant on it. I'm just 
using it for uh, the website that David Farrell and I run. And I said, well, I guess someone has to step up to do this. And so I started figuring out who do I need to talk to? Like, I've never had a domain stolen. So I didn't know anything about any of this. And it's, there's an entire world of just this. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize this happened so much and with such sophistication. Basically, I started a Google Doc. I invited everyone I could think of who had the ability to do something. And we just started collecting as much information as we can. It turns out all sorts of other people had had their domain stolen at the same time, which we think might be part of the same operation. Some of the domains showed up for sale from the same person in various places. And then this is the really interesting part with with Perl in particular, because you know Perl was very popular 80s and 90s. System administrators Mm -hmm. loved it. And this is where a lot of the people who are in the internet infrastructure business probably started their careers. They they know Perl, they might not use it, but they at least have fond memories of it. Well, maybe sometimes not so fond memories. <laughs> so so when we needed help, a lot of very interesting people noticed and they put us in touch with the sort of people who know how to make the internet do what it's supposed to do. And mm-hmm. we started talking to them and I can't really disclose who they are or who they work for, but these are the people that make sure the internet keeps running. Like literally at the low levels, DNS types, the registrar types, and they were glad to help out. And again, we're just collecting information and finding out how this process works. I was sure this thing was going to take months to figure out. I have read horror stories where someone gets their domain stolen and they go through the whole process and they get ICANN involved and there's all these fees and lawyers. And like four months later, their website, which you know no one really had paid much attention to anyway, is still offline because this domain belongs to someone in some other foreign country where they don't really have uh, legal access to get things done. And that's one of the, the tricks that's really interesting about the story. It's, it's like a detective story. They know that with us being in the U.S., we're going to have a really hard time accessing the legal system in some Eastern European country or some Asian country. So they bounce things around. They use all these different jurisdictions just to make it hard for us to do something. So once people were aware of this, and I was I was basically the go-between. I People were talking to me because I was the one who would put this out on Twitter to say, help me, please. Anyone who knows what this is, please contact me and tell me what to do. I am an idiot. Again, I'm not the registrant. I'm not in charge of this, but I know all the, all the people. And so Tom Christensen, who... Oh, as we were talking before the podcast started, he's the one of the authors on Programming Perl. And, and I've worked with him extensively in the past. I know how he likes to operate. I know how he likes to get things done. I said, Tom, just relax. I will coordinate everything. And I will just give you the people that you need to talk to so that you don't have to field all these queries from the press, from random strangers with their weird internet conspiracy theories and all this sort of stuff just the people who had the ability to actually do something for us. And he said, fine, do that. I worked with the, what we call the Pearl Knock. We have a network operations center, which is basically just a mm. couple of people who've been around forever who just keep things running. Uh, part of it is sponsored by Fastly, which is a, a big uh, CDN. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of the community content managed there. They handle the CPAN multiplexer. So for those of you outside of Perl, we have the comprehensive Perl archive network, which is our collection of modules. And we have clients that download that stuff and install it. 
it used to be spread out in all sorts of mirrors. Again, Pearl has this heritage from the 80s when, oh, I want to be a, a CPAN mirror. So I'll just R-sync this directory from this mm -hmm. one site. And now I'm a CPAN mirror. Oh, I don't have to ask days. anyone's permission. Yeah. <laughs> and then what you'd have to do. And then you get on the official to, mirror list. <laughs> yes, you get on the mirror list. And then to configure your client, you'd have to look at that list and say, I'm going to guess that this one's close to me. Like, uh -huh. like University of Indiana or something like that would, would be close to me in Chicago. Yep. And then you would hope that would work out. All that now is figured out automatically for you. Your client hits the CDN. It knows what your IP address is. It guesses, oh, this is where you're mm -hmm. close to. So I'll give you this mirror. Anyway, so the, the Pearl knock handles all that stuff. At the same time that David Farrell had noticed this, Robert Spear from the Pearl knock had noticed a change in traffic. So, you know, the domain is stolen. They have rerouted the DNS. So all of a sudden our traffic goes to the floor. So he just noticed it because it looks weird. So he's like, oh, maybe there's something wrong with this, with the server or something. No, it's not that. We, we find out that our DNS has been changed. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. And I didn't know this sort of stuff before. The people who do this, who steal these domains are very, very sophisticated. They've done this before. This isn't some random rootkit sort of thing goofing around. We noticed this, I think it was end of January. Yeah, January 28th is when we noticed this, or 27th maybe. The domain had actually been stolen in September. What they had done, from what I can piece together from talking to a bunch of people who had, were in the similar situation, was that they had come to the registrar with phony documents. And they had done some sort of social engineering around this to figure out what they had to do to update the domain or the domain in the registrar. And then they updated it there. They left the domain at the original registrar. They come back months later. They transfer the domain to a different registrar. Now, so ICANN has this rule where if you make a, a change to the registration, you can't move the domain within 60 days. You have to wait two months to move this. So they're thinking about that sort of thing. I come in, I change who the registrant is, and then I immediately steal it. Well, that doesn't work. So this thing had been stolen long before we ever realized it. So they wait the two months, they transfer it to a registrar in China. So again, they're changing the jurisdiction. And we're, we have no hope of influencing the legal system in China just because it's a different country. We don't speak Chinese. There's different business practices and that sort of stuff. They leave it there for a little while. And then they transfer it to a, another registrar in Eastern Europe. And at that point, I think what happens is they had sold it. So they, they sat on it for a while. They waited. They, we didn't notice. They sell it. The new owner registers it in this other country and then changes the DNS. And then that's when we notice. Now, here's the interesting thing with this. And this is where this is the advice you should take away from this entire podcast if you deal with domains. If you have a domain, don't use an email address in that domain in your registration record because once they change the DNS, you will not get any mail. So we didn't even <laughs> get any mail saying that there was a problem because it was getting swallowed by this, this new server. We're going to fix that. I mean, I think we have fixed that. I haven't followed up with, with Robert about that. But there has to be someone else, another avenue so someone can contact you. Okay, so once we figured out what happened, and a lot of that came from, from some lawyers who gave us some free help, not personally or anything, they just did it on Twitter. They have access to all these fancy tools that can recognize all this stuff. One was, uh, his name was John Berryhill. I think this is all he does, is get domains back for people. 
And so he looked at some records. He said, oh yeah, it changed back in September. Then it did this. And then it did this. He, we didn't ever actually engage him in a, in his professional capacity. He just said, this is what you have to deal with and good luck. But it was amazing that he was able to get that information and point us in the right direction. And then other lawyers for the particular parties involved, the various registrars started to get in touch with me and they all know each other. And I think they deal with this a lot. And so they said, okay, we know what's going on. We know absolutely that you guys own the domain. This is a legit thing. We are going to go through our process. And I'm like, okay, this is going to take you know, months just because exchanging paperwork and all this. Part of it, I think, is they have to agree with each other who's going to be left holding the bag if somebody gets sued. Like if, if we want to come and sue them, who's going to take on that legal liability? Mm. The domain it ended up at, it just got a transfer inbound. It didn't particularly have any part in the theft itself. The The domain that was in the middle is no longer involved because they transferred it to this other place. And the, the source registrar, I don't know. It's No one wants to be the person standing up when the music stops. So anyway, they figure that out. And then I get this really interesting message from one of the, the lawyers at the, at the registrar that had it. It said, hey, tomorrow you get your domain back. It's all worked out. Tomorrow it's going to happen. Now, having been in the, the computer world for a while, tomorrow might be, it's always tomorrow. <laughs> right? There, there's that joke, um, you can have it by Christmas. Just I'm not going to tell you which Christmas it is. But then we, we got it back and it was amazing. Now, now, here's the other interesting thing. This had gone on for about six days, which is much shorter than three months, but still very good. But during that time, it was well known that this domain had been stolen. It was in the registrar, I mean, in the register, the, the newspaper in the UK. It was in some other newspapers. And so the companies that manage this sort of security for other companies started blacklisting the domain because you might go oh, there. No. And I think it ended up at like an Amazon, an AWS server that had some sort of weird JavaScript payload. And I mean, that's what they should do, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. now a malicious yeah. domain. Okay. So we set up another domain that people could use in the meantime. And we just figured this blacklisting will naturally taper off. They'll eventually work itself out over several months. And if people have a problem, they can just write to us and we'll deal with the, those companies. I mean, they're doing exactly what they should do. But those things take a while to recover. And then it turned out like after a couple of weeks, no one was talking to us about my company's blocking this or or anything like that. Part of that, I think, is that the news got out very quickly that the domain was legitimately pointing to the right place again. Again, like the registrar, the the newspaper in the UK, very Pearl friendly. They had a lot of Pearl people who worked there in the past. So people pay attention to them. They know what they're talking about. That helped out quite a bit. Now, the other interesting part of this whole thing was that everyone in the world seems to be writing about this story, partly because it's interesting that a well-known domain got stolen, but also maybe because, hey, look at Pearl, haha, look what happened to them, whatever. So part of our response was actually track everyone who's who's reporting on it in a press capacity, not, you know, not every random person on Twitter, but the people who are actually reporting these as news stories. And it and then contact them and say, hey, we saw your story. Here's some additional information and we're glad to talk to you. These are the things that you got right. These are the things that you got wrong. Mm-hmm. And just we had this in the Google Docs, every news story, 
we actually highlighted it in, in red, amber, and green for good to go, need some work, and you know, total BS. A lot of people got back to us. The real journalists did. But the interesting thing we found out was that there's a lot of people who are, it looks like they're writing for a, some sort of news thing. Like a, it looks like it's, it's a news site or, or a newspaper or something like that. They don't have contact information. What reporter doesn't have contact information? Like, how do you get sources? How do, you, how do people bring you stories if no one can figure out how to talk to you? A lot, a lot of that, we had to track them down in DMs and Twitter, which they wouldn't respond to or, or things like that. That, that was a, the part that was sort of unexpected. I expected they'll have the whole saga with the registrars. I didn't expect to have to chase down all these news sites, do various things. But that wasn't too bad. Now, along the way, we're saying, okay, so Pearl.com got hijacked. What about all the other Pearl domains that we care about? So part of the problem with Pearl.com was that Tom registered it back in 95. Oh, wow. So, so back in 95, Network Solutions was the place to be because there wasn't really anything going on. And then we didn't have a problem until what year is it? It's 2021. So mm-hmm. it just sat there. And we didn't think about it. We didn't have to update it because Tom's information hadn't changed. What about all the other Pearl domains? We have, there's Pearl.org. There's cpan.org. There's a bunch of things that might have the same problem. Since, since our community is so old, and I mean, that sounds like a bad thing, but it's just we've been around for so long, the same people doing the same things for the community. We haven't really paid attention to just the normal admin upkeep of our assets. And I mean, everyone's going to realize that we did the same thing with Pearl.com that we do every day in our work lives. If it's not a problem, we don't think about it. And until it's a problem, we just don't care. There's always something that seems more interesting or more pressing to do. I wasn't part of that. I I just wanted to get this website that I, I edit articles for to get back online and once we got that going and we had an idea of what we needed to do, other people at the Pearl Foundation have taken charge of that. So it, in all that, it, it turned out the best possible way it could for us. The whole process was a couple of days. I mean, I didn't get much sleep that week because I was just trying to manage the story because as with anything that gets in the news, people guess and then they report people's <laughs> guesses. Uh-huh. I mean, like the biggest guess was that, that we had failed to pay for the the renewal and it expired right. and then got snarfed up. But and this is a, a thing I didn't mention before. When they initially did the attack, they they changed the registration slightly and then they renewed it for two years. So they actually paid a little bit of money, renewed it for two years. I mean, it, I think its expiration was in 2029 and now it's in 2031. And I, I guess maybe that's part of the social engineering that hey, if I'm going to give you, you know, 13 bucks or whatever it is, I seem more legit. But hey, you know, 13 bucks when they tried to sell the thing for, I think it was $190,000. I don't know what the what the guy paid for it who tried to sell it. I don't know what he paid, but I don't know who is going to pay $190,000 for that thing. I mean, I guess you can ask for that, but who knows? Yeah, so, so yeah, that's basically the story. There's so many things to unpack there, you know? Yeah. I mean, just starting from, so, so as, as Charles said, I'm, I'm in the security world, so I, I see these kinds of things. Usually, you know, just, just to, I guess, 
clarify that. I mean, there's so many different motivations, right? There's so many different types of criminal elements or threat, threat actors, as we call them. Typically, what I'm seeing is the ones that are doing it more of the onesie twosie because it's very targeted. So, in my world, I would see a threat actor going after like a pro.com to hijack it as a CNC server or you know device. Because if you on your own network saw traffic going to pro.com, you're not going to worry about it. That looks legit, right? So if all of a sudden it becomes a CNC server command and control for your malware that's only for a very specific targeted attack, that's the type of thing that that, that I see that, that but you're talking about is more of, hey, let's go after all these well-known properties that I can resell, right? That's just much more the sort of that shock, that approach of, that's what it sounds like to me. I, I haven't done any research into this, but, but that's well, what it sounds like from what you're describing. Well, so I think it's a brilliant scheme where it's like a sandwich where the two slices of bread are the people who get screwed. So we get our stuff stolen and the guy who bought the stolen domain doesn't get any value out of it. But the person in the middle is the is a person in the gold rush town selling the picks and the axes. Mm-hmm. So so they're making money because they're just going to turn this around quick because someone is going to be the dupe. And then that person just disappears. I, I don't think there's any way probably to find that person. Right. Right. They've got well, their... They, right. And they're typically operating out of countries where, you know, extradition is going to be difficult. Working with law enforcement is going to be difficult. I mean, that's typically, it doesn't always happen that way. I mean, we're seeing more and more that where the FBI is, you know, is able to go after these threat actors in other countries and actually prosecute. So that's changing. But yeah, I mean, in general, it's a problem and the FBI will have to pick and choose, you know, which ones they want to try and go after. So so this is an interesting part of the story, too, is that I was... I was talking to the people involved that we should contact the FBI field office. They have an internet crime task force. Oh, yeah. But what people don't realize a lot about law enforcement is that they don't have time to chase everything down. So the FBI has a dollar value of damages that you have to prove before you can get into their, their queue. It's not nice that it's that way. It's just that's the reality. Yeah, I mean, and since, the, re, the resource starved. I mean, I, I shouldn't say it that way, but th- there's just too much crime versus how much FBI law enforcement resources there are. Yeah, and since our thing got resolved so quickly, it turns out we didn't really suffer enough damages. I mean, we're not a commercial site. We didn't lose money. We weren't losing sales. Some people didn't get to see Pearl articles for a week. The number I have I have been told by FBI agents in the past when I've had to deal with this stuff is that $5,000 is sort of a floor. And if, if it's below that, they just, they just don't have the time to deal with you. Yeah. You and know, then, like, one thing, what, well, one thing say, I, I would say though, is, go ahead. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. One thing I'd say just to any of the listeners though, is that aside, always call the FBI because you're doing your country really a service by doing that because it's the, the, the more, cases that the FBI sees and just has knowledge of that makes them right that that's going to change how what they go after and how they you know how they operate and all that so if they don't know about things that are going on that's that's just sort of doing a disservice to law enforcement in general so that's one thing I would just say is that even if they can't help you directly let them know what's going on and, and they'll let you know if they can help or not yeah that's that's a good point because that's the same thing that I had had told people it'll at least show up in their statistics. They might not have, have opened a case, but they'll say, 
they might notice something like, okay, so this guy's domain was stolen. We have these 10 other complaints at the same time, the same pattern. And so it might be part of a larger international case that you wouldn't even know about unless they know that you had this little incident that they can correlate with, you know, however they correlate things. Curious, what did the the new buyer of the domain, what did they actually do with it? Or what was, was it just that it was a domain that received a lot of traffic and so they were trying to serve up ads on there? Or what was the motivation for, for purchasing it? Because presumably, if you're purchasing a domain like Pearl.com, I would think that you would be aware of the history of it maybe and, and kind of be maybe a little suspicious, like, oh, wait, why is this domain for sale? Yeah. So, I mean, I can only speculate here. I suspect that they wanted to ransom it thinking that we would buy it back. Again, the, the price they put on it was $190,000. And I think it got bumped down to $170,000. The problem is they tried to sell it through GoDaddy. And once the legal people got involved from the registrars, GoDaddy just delisted it along with like four other domains they were offering. In the meantime, they had pointed it at this, this AWS server, which was serving some weird JavaScript payload thing that, I mean, I didn't follow up on that to see what malicious things that might try to do. I don't think it was very sophisticated. I think it was just like sort of a placeholder, um, like you're saying before, a command and control server maybe that could infect something. But I don't think they ever got the chance to actually do anything with that. And that's one of the other interesting things when you talk about monitoring traffic, like, yeah, you're going to Perl.com, but you're really, it translates to an IP address and you end up going to this AWS server. And that's the thing that people should watch out for. All of a sudden, all sorts of stuff is going to this, this one AWS server. Why is that? That's, that could be really weird. I, yeah, I don't know what he was doing. I, he couldn't have had long-term plans for it. And if you think that we're going to pay $190,000 for it, or I mean, any money, I, we had started making plans just to not use a domain anymore. We'll just come up with a different domain and that will just be part of history. And and this is one of the interesting things about these sort of responses is that you can't settle on one course of action. So you can't say, okay, we're going to get this domain back and we're going to do this. Like, no, at the same time, we have to start making plans. What if we don't get this domain back? I mean, not mm-hmm. only never, but say in the next three months, are we just going to be offline for three months or are we going to have an alternate way to get to this con- this content? So we had set up the, another domain, a subdomain of pearl.org, which was pearl.com.org so you know p-e-r-l-d-o-t-c-o-m dot pearl.org and advertise that and people can just update that in their etsy hosts or whatever until we get back to whatever we want oh and that's the other thing we told people this was a big part of our response was these are the name servers and the ip addresses for the real pearl.com you can put these in your local configuration your company configuration whatever and get to these. If you have any question about these IP addresses, you can look them up. You can see who owns them. You can know, see those names Look and just Google those names. You'll see those people have been involved with Pearl for 20 years. Mm. So that's a sort of a thing we had to make up on the fly. How are we managing the public response to all, all of this? And how do they know that what we're telling them is the good information? Uh, random people will look at Hacker News or Twitter or whatever, and they'll see someone, they'll say, oh, this person said this, so that must be the thing. One of the things that Robert and I decided early on is we're going to have one web page, one blog post at knock.pearl.org that has the current information. So it's not like, oh, we have a new blog post with new information, and now you have to go look at that. No, every response we have is going to point to this one web page that we will just, well, one blog post that we will just constantly update 
with whatever the status is. You never have to see a different URL. You don't have to follow any sort of threads to see what the new post might be. No, just go to this one place. We're going to tell you what's going on. We told them what the IP addresses were, what the, the ranges were, what those companies involved were. And just because people are always curious what our best estimate for recovery of the domain was. During this, we couldn't say anything. But we could say, you know, we're expecting it in the next week, not three months from now or whatever our worst case was. That would, And then along with that, we sort of limited the people who were giving out information because when too many people got involved, they would change the story slightly because they didn't understand something or they are not up to date on everything. In this Google Doc, we had, we developed talking points and a paragraph summary. These are the things you can talk about. These are the things that we know with confidence that we can tell the public. And then if you want to talk to the press, these are the things that you're able to say with confidence. No, I mean, we're not trying to control what um, they're putting out there, but at the same time, we don't want them speculating because then speculation turns into fact when you tell it to a reporter. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, once the reporter puts it in their article, it goes into Wikipedia because that's a trusted resource. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. And, and it's it's true, though. It's it's amazing. It is many, true. It's Yeah, anyway. If you want... If you want to get something in Wikipedia, you just find some newspaper person who will do you a favor and write something that someone else can point to, not realizing that you are the impetus for the story. Along with this, we were, again, tracking all this stuff, green, amber, and red, things that we knew with high confidence because it came from primary sources, amber, things that we've sort of heard that we need to trace back to their primary sources, and then red was just stuff people had made up. Most of the things on the internet were you know, in that red category. The easy explanation, as I said before, is, oh, we for, we were stupid and forgot to renew the domain. And so, well, you guys have probably experienced this or maybe even been part of the other side of this. I know I have at points in my life. You read something and you go, oh, yeah, they must have done this. It's That's just the simplest yep. story. It's it's easy to count on human stupidity for for most outcomes. And I thought maybe we had forgotten to renew it. That was my first response but then you start looking into things and and it's not so simple i mean this thing sort of reads like this this tom clancy novel if you you're always these these tom clancy novels you're starting off like you're in the mid-atlantic on some submarine and then you're doing stuff and then oh now you're in budapest and there's this other guy doing this other thing i kept bouncing between different registrars and different groups of people and it was just like this adventure where information slowly revealed itself and things slowly started to come into focus. And all the while, I don't really get to know any of it because I'm not the registrant on the domain. So I'm not actually the injured party legally. There is no obligation for anyone in any of this process to tell me anything. I'm just the guy who's trying to coordinate it and hook up people who need to talk to each other so that we can resolve this as quickly as possible. And as exciting as it might have been and as romantic as a Tom Clancy novel might sound, I would not want to do this again. <laughs> like, there are people who who would enjoy doing this every day of their life as long as it's not their domain. Right. I would rather just not think about work, you know, when it gets to the end of the day and go off and do something else. This is the thing where just all the time zones involved, all the, the speed at which the internet spreads rumors and, and things get out there, it's just 24-7 while you're in the middle of the incident. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. 
We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, I, I went through a fairly public incident. Not not like this, but it was about something else. But yeah, I wish I had been as organized to just, okay, what this person's saying is they've got this stuff right, and th- you know, this other stuff, and trying to chase it all down. Yeah, it gets really, really tricky really fast because everybody has an opinion and everybody wants to know what sound like they know what they're talking about. Um, one thing that I'm curious about just going, talking through this and going into it is, and you mentioned, hey, make sure that your primary email address is at a different domain. But besides that, I mean, what else can you do? Because there are a few domains that I kind of rely on for the stuff that I do, right? These podcasts all go out on a domain. There are other domains that I'm either working on putting something on or have other stuff on, right? And so if somebody snags one of that or is, how do I keep somebody from snagging one of those? I mean, it sounds like you kind of walk through, hey, this is what I did to figure it out. But yeah, how do I keep it from happening in the first place? So part of this is enable all the security features that your registrar offers. So a lot of them, most of them now should offer two-factor in some way. So they're going to send a text to your phone or send an email to you before when they want to make a change there's the you should be able to put a transfer lock on your domains Mm -hmm. if you want to transfer it there's a special code you have to know like for instance i have been transferring a lot of stuff to cloud uh, flare recently just because they're really really cheap you can't register stuff there but you they will let you transfer in so i have to go enable outbound transfers in my domains so disable that right off the bat if you don't want it going anywhere and then even after I've disabled that, there's a special code I need, that this, this transfer code that I have to give the requesting registrar so that they can prove, they can do this little handshake with the, the current one. And then there's this two-factor thing that says, hey, this thing is happening. Did you do this? So look at whatever your, your solution is providing. Make sure you're using all of their upgraded security features. If you haven't looked at it in a couple of years, they might have added something new that you haven't enabled yet. But now. The other thing to realize is we who work in technology know that the technology is fine as long as we obey the technology. If we call up somebody and and offer fake documents and make some special plea and the person who happens to be on the other end of the phone is dis- is disposed to help out hard luck cases, they can just bypass all of that. So that's all this stuff isn't going to prevent anything. It's just going to make it really, really hard. And if you're in the security world, you, you don't make things impossible. We just make things very, very difficult. For instance, if you have a safe, um, they're not ready to keep people out. They're ready to keep people out for a certain amount of time, which allows a response, the police to show up, the your home alarms to go off or whatever. You know, fire safes are rated for a certain heat for a certain amount of time. Not They're not going to save your documents if the fire is as hot as the sun and goes on for millennia, it's going to save it for three hours at a temperature of, you know, 2000 degrees or something like that. Hopefully enough time for the fire department to get there and put it out. The same thing with any other technological solution. So besides all the the features that you can enable and use that are there that you might not have seen since the last time you checked, a monitoring service that is completely separate from your registrar would help. Something that says something has changed in this record 
and make sure that you intended that. And you might even have more than one of those just so that you have some some backup there. Um, they might do it on different frequencies, uh, depending on whatever plan you have. So again, just to sum up, make sure you're using all the features you can and to monitor that stuff. And it might even be as simple as you write your own program that just says, hey, give me the who is record or get me the, the mm. name servers for this and tell me if it's changed. If you're not that technical, there are services who will gladly do this for, for a very low fee because most of the time they're just hitting a web server and doing nothing for you. They, they send email. They don't have to charge you a lot. And there's probably some companies that do charge amazing amounts of money for this. But I mean, that's true with anything. So layers of security, get it on the inside, work your way out, use all sorts of stuff. And again, like I said, don't use that domain for the email for your registrant contact because you will lose all that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, and I think that the the real issue, I think for many companies is that like to your point, Brian, is that or this case, right, where the domain was originally registered decades ago. I mean, literally decades ago. So things have changed a lot since those days. And I mean, again, there's so much to unpack here. Like you think about how it used to really, I mean, Network Solutions was it back in those days. And today there's so many registrars and it's just become sort of arcane with, you know, just how the internet works in terms of registering domains and dealing with DNS and all that. But yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it, there are They are putting in more features because this is, unfortunately, this is a common type of, attack that a lot of people face. So there are, you know, ways that they, you know, it used to be that the person who registered the the domain had to have a had to have their contact information. So if I did a who is call on pearl.com, I'd find out, well, it was registered to Tom Christensen and and by the way, here's his email address and his phone number and maybe even a physical address. Like that's how it used to be back in the day. Today you pay like a couple bucks more when you register your domain and they basically seal all that off and you basically just get so you know if you register it through whatever GoDaddy or somebody else you're just getting a GoDaddy contact instead so that's good for for companies so that their people aren't getting you know socially engineered themselves like you know whoever's in your marketing department who's probably registering the domain for the company like they're not getting hammered by by these types of scams, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of like layers, uh, I totally agree. And it does behoove you to pay attention to them and put them all in place. And yeah, if there's multi-factor authentication being offered, if there isn't, don't use that registrar. And if there is, then make sure that it's, that you're, that you're setting, you know, that, that you're actually utilizing it. Because it, I, I agree, I think if you put all those things in place, you're more, you're less likely to get hit by one of these attacks because there's plenty of domains out there that don't have all that stuff set up that are probably easier to to hijack and into uh for whatever reason that they're that they're after it they're after it. There's this other interesting thing and, and you might remember this from way back. I don't know when you got your first SSL certificate. I I was getting a bunch of them in the, the 90s. You had to go through this this process <laughs> that took about three weeks where you had to yep. prove to a company that you were who you say you were. Verisign back in those days, I think, right? They were the only game in town, if I remember right. Yeah, you had to have, we had to get a Dun & Bradstreet number. Dun & Bradstreet is a credit reporting thing yep. for businesses, basically to prove that you exist and that you pay your bills. We had to do all this stuff and notaries were involved. And then like three months later, we had our SSL certificate. Today, you 
basically just have to provide a special string in a special location on the website. So yeah. if they steal Pearl.com and they want to get a Let's Encrypt certificate, they put a they modify either their DNS entry or they they put their challenge in this special file. Let's Encrypt goes to this now high, hijacked yeah. domain and they have an SSL certificate. Yeah. That is that blows my mind because I'm used to this world where we had to prove who we were. And like you say, like you could look and see in the, the who is record, you could see the person and you probably recognize that name because you ran into him on Usenet. Right. You know, for yep. Us, Usenet kids, look it up in Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> and oh, it, if uh, some news so person true. hasn't it, screwed it, it cost up. you, but when you, but when you went to register that, or uh, when you went to request that, that um, SSL certificate, it was a few hundred bucks, if I remember. I mean, it was not. It was not cheap. It was. It, it was a whole effort. Today, yeah. Let's Encrypt is like a checkbox you know, on your hosting provider, right? I mean, it's literally that easy. Like I, I know on my website, that's literally all I had to do was check a box, like, yeah, give me a Let's Encrypt certificate, and it's free. You get. You sort of do get what you pay for in, in some ways. I mean, you get the technology, but you get nothing behind it. So, and and even even then, it's no one even expects that you're going to have the same certificate because Let's Encrypt expires after three months. So a change in certificate isn't even a red flag anymore. Right, right. It's it's a different world. No, and you're right. Adjusting. And, it, and it's, well, and it's become so common place where you see, like, you're right. It used to be a red flag that, that security folks would say, hey, if you see something goofy with the certificate, like, but now that they're free, it's not. And I think at the same time, you have so many companies that had inadvertently allowed their SSL certificates to to get stale, to get out of date, and then all of a sudden, you know, your browser is saying, uh, are "You sure you want to go there?" Because their certificate is either out of date or you know there's a problem with it, or it's about you know it's it's pointed at this domain even though it's the certificate is only for that domain, and you know you, you, we find these issues all the time, and I think users are just so accustomed to like seeing that they don't even pay attention to it anymore. It's it's I think in a lot of ways part of what the certificate was bringing, the value it was bringing, I think has been lost. Yeah, I, I just don't, yeah. I don't see how else we could do it with the number of certificates that people actually need now. Right. Well, they have, you know, the, there's, there's levels of it. What's the highest level, like EV something or other? Yeah. They, you know, and you, you pay a few hundred bucks and, and but I, I don't think that most people are even paying attention to like what type, you have to really look closely at your browser to see, to even look at what type of certificate it is. And, and I don't think most people even are pay, paying attention to that. And, and one of the interesting things is now we have these certificates, which are actually for multi <laughs> multiple domains. So if I go and inspect the certificate, when I just updated it for whatever website I have, there are a bunch of domains that aren't me as part of that certificate. They're, just batching these things up together. And so, I mean, I don't read the X509 stuff. I mean, I I have a, an awareness of what it's supposed to do, but I don't understand what I'm looking at. I mean, it's like looking at a core dump sometimes. And so I don't I don't know how a regular person who does not care about any of this would even verify the certificate and then know what know anything about what the browser is presenting to you. Because it's a very, you know, technical presentation you ask to see the security of the site well here you go it's like that doesn't help me at all yeah right yeah it's i mean this is to me this could probably spend two more episodes just on this issue alone which is basically how does the lay person 
I think about like I think about my mom, you know, when she has questions for me on, on her computer, on her, you know, or on her iPhone or whatever. And it's like hard. And, and I and I totally feel bad because it's like, yeah, this isn't easy. There's nothing like it's not easy to explain. It's not easy to figure out what's either not working or how do you know if it's a scam or if it's, you know, if it's legit or what have you. And it's it's just getting more and more complicated and and harder. You know, back in the day, it was easier for us to understand and, and sort of be able to figure out. Yeah, that's that's totally not legit. And today, it's 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 a different world. It's tough to do. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to push us toward picks unless there's something else that we need to drive at here. I have one more question for Brian. You covered earlier kind of how to prevent this kind of thing from happening in the first place, which is obviously probably the most relevant and important thing. But let's say someone does all that. And, you know, as you mentioned, this is a social engineering element to this. So you can never completely prevent it from happening. If it does happen to somebody, what are what are the top few things that you think you did right in the response? And what are the things that you learned that maybe you do differently has happened to you again? Okay. I think the thing that we we did really well is with the core people involved, we decided that I was the coordinator. I, it doesn't matter who is. I'm not any particular special person for that. It's just someone has to have the time and inclination to manage all the ducks. So get the Google Doc, get everyone to participate in the Google Doc so they always know that there's a place to get the latest information. Now with that, since I was coordinating, I wasn't really working. If someone volunteered to do something, there, you're doing that. I don't, I'm not saving any work for me. If someone volunteers or or gives us something that's useful that's just something i don't have to do so that coordination part worked really well because a lot of the problem was people were talking to me and i knew they needed to talk to these other people and then once i could connected them i could get out of the way now then of course i follow up and say hey how did that turn out what do we know from whatever you talked about put it in the google doc give us your uh, confidence level so the first thing is the coordination the second thing is classifying information. Now, I was in the army for a long time and we had this thing called rumor control. Whenever you were spreading a rumor, you had to specify two things, the time you heard it and the person you heard it from. I heard this from Lieutenant so-and-so at 1300. Well, I heard from Captain so-and-so at 1305. Okay, so in that cage fight of information, the higher rank and the later date are going to win. So when we were putting stuff in the Google Doc, I insisted that everyone tag every fact that they put in there with a source and a time. I learned this at this time from this person. And then someone else could come up with a a very similar fact saying, I learned it from this other person at this other time. And then we could start to trace back who the real source of the information was. So I could say, oh, interesting. I could go to that person and say, hey, where did you hear that thing? And they say, oh, I heard it from this person. And then we can get back to the key players so that we knew that we were dealing with firsthand fundamental information. Part of the whole thing with any sort of response when you have no idea what's going on, you just, you just parachuted into this, this dumpster fire, is to figure out what's true and what's not. And there's no real test for that other than trying to work back to where the information came from. And then you find out something stupid like, oh, it all came from this hacker news thread where this guy was saying this and then people believed it and then it got around and then came back around and showed up with our people. And the people that we had trusted to be in this Google Doc were pretty good with that. They they knew how to separate 
this is good stuff and this is speculation. One of the other really good things that we didn't do, I mean, you see that we did do is we did not exclude speculation from the information we collected. We just tagged it as red. So we know that this is a speculation. We know people are speculating about this. We don't have any confidence in it, but we're going to keep it around because maybe its confidence will change. Maybe we can disprove it, or maybe we can find out what was happening. Maybe they said this thing, but they misunderstood one little key aspect and they translated it, you know, like in that game of telephone. And half the stuff they were saying was good and half was not. Um, if you're only including the good information, you're sort of missing a lot of the, the landscape of the, the problem. That stuff might turn out to be important later. Often it, it doesn't, but you don't know that in the middle of the situation. So again, I guess to sum up is, is have someone be like the project manager, be the coordinator. Just someone who's going to take the responsibility of making sure the information is presented, tagged, people follow the rules. If someone volunteers to do something, do uh, if someone volunteers to do something, let them go do that thing. Don't be territorial. Like, oh, I'm the expert in that. No, you're you're busy doing this thing. Let that person do the other thing. And then just collect as much information as you can. Track everything. Track every thread. Track every person talking about it. Figure out your confidence in those. And then later on, you'll have a very good basis for making decisions, I think. I like it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do picks. Can, oh, did, was somebody going to follow up on that? No, I, I just need that, that sage advice. I mean, the, the project coordinator thing is huge. So I, I think that's that's awesome. Good advice. Well, it seems like the same advice that we have for any other kind of incident that we deal with as DevOps folks or developer folks, for that matter, yeah. is you have one point person that collects all the information you have. And yeah, other people may be going and pulling in logs or looking at logs or pulling in other information or talking to customers or whatever. But yeah, somebody is coordinating the whole mess so that at the end of the day, there's there's one point of contact and one point of coordination so that A, you don't duplicate information and two, so that you can have that central source of truth to figure out what actually is going on and what the next right step is. So I like it, really like it. Let's do some picks. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Jeffrey, why don't you go first? All right. So since we're talking about security anyway, I'm going to throw out for anybody who's not familiar with this, if you're looking for, or I think you should be looking for, a source of good information about security incidents and just things like, hey, if you use Google Chrome, you know, you probably, you should be probably updating it almost on a weekly basis. It just seems like there's vulnerabilities coming out so often. So that's just my example. But if you just want to know like when this stuff comes out or on your Apple devices, on your Microsoft software, stuff like that, 
the MSISAC, Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center. It's a, it's a mouthful. It's hosted, it's run by uh, the Center for Internet Security. So I'll put a uh, link in the show notes for how to sign up. Basically, just sign up on their email list. You only get email when something important comes out. Right? This means, hey, go update Chrome or, hey, go update your Apple software or you know your Mac OS or whatever, or go update you know Microsoft stuff. So it's not, you don't get just bludgeoned with all kinds of junk. It's just about getting updates and just knowing in a very, it's really timely stuff, great updates, great information. And I think anybody who's technical, who operates in the, in just in any type of technology should be using this and, and getting some, you know, some kind of an update like this. Nice. Caleb, how about you? Uh, yeah, so something I've been enjoying revisiting recently is, uh, you know, how we do stand-ups and communicate as a remote company. Uh, and there's a tool that uh, I've been using for years called GeekBot, which is geekbot.com. And it does stand-ups basically through Slack. It prompts, uh, you know, people to do a stand-up every day over Slack, you know, in their time zone. Uh, it has some fun little questions and ways that it, you know, does those kind of things. But they've rolled out some other features in the meantime that I was kind of revisiting. And one of them was the uh, the product change log feature that they uh, that they added. I don't know when exactly it was added, but I wasn't really aware of it before. But I was starting to look into how do we how do we get a definitive picture of every change in the infrastructure and across products and services within the company, so that if we're troubleshooting an issue, we can go okay. What changed in the last 30 minutes, in the last hour, in the last two hours? Or maybe we look back at some you know, metrics and we see that something changed yesterday in the metrics. We can go back and like what actually changed or what changes were pushed around that time that could have potentially caused this anomaly or outage or you know, whatever it was. And so what we've been doing recently is using GeekBot to handle that. They have a product change log feature that basically allows your developers to really easily to say, I'm making a change to this. Here's the details of the change. You can add custom, you know, prompts in there for various things, maybe commits or services affected, or you know, those kind of things. And then anyone can go in there and just access that and say, okay, here's all the things that change at these times, and really quickly kind of see and correlate with different metrics, what changed, when it changed. So for for DevOps, like people troubleshooting outages or you know anomalies in infrastructure, that's become really really valuable to us. So I just wanted to. Uh, Shout that one out as something that we've been doing recently. Awesome. I'm going to throw out a few picks here myself. One of them is a book that I've been reading lately called Who Not How. And it's it's a more of a management book than a technical book. In fact, it is a management book instead of a technical book. But the idea is, is that rather than trying to figure out how to solve problems, it's a business book. You want to find the person who can solve your problems. And so if you're trying to run a business, if you're trying to if you're in management, instead of trying to be the solution, you want to find the solution and the, the solution is probably another human being, right? It could be somebody already in your company, could be somebody that you need to hire, but at the end of the day, that's that's the idea behind it. So I'm going to pick who, not how. And then I think, I think that's it. That's all I've got this week. Brian, do you have some picks, just things you want to shout out about on the show? Yeah, sure. I have a few. I want to make one comment on your your who, not how. When I was being mentored in, in leadership a long time ago, someone told me that the essence of leadership in that regard is accepting work that you could have done better if you had done it yourself. Mm. So when you're picking that at who, 
they might not do the job to your own satisfaction, but it might just be satisfactory. You, but you can't do all the work. Mm-hmm. So you have to allow them to do their own journey where they're going to, you know, get better. I've been reading John Austerhout's book, uh, The Philosophy of Software Design. I think that's what it's called. You know, he's a, the guy who created Tickle. And you might remember Expect. I'm seeing blank faces on the on the Zoom. Tickle, the, this thing, is the tool command language. It was a programming language a long time ago. Well, I mean, it still is. That was basically, you had these command strings that you passed around and did very interesting things with them. And there was this program called Expect where you could interact with systems through a program. You could say, hey, SSH to this site and then look for this string, you know, like your prompt. And when you see that, send this command and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. For Managing instance, Cisco routers and firewalls and stuff, I still see stuff, still see expect once in a while. So in when I was in grad school, I had a scientist who liked to log in and, and run who to see who was working. And so I said, well, I'm just going to make all these expect scripts and I'm going to have them do random things. And I'm going to give them to all the graduate students. So you can log in all you want and you can run who all you want. You're not going to know who's doing what. Anyways, so he created, it was actually Don Libs who created Expect. It was John Ausserhout who created Tickle. And he's got this book, The Philosophy of Software Design. He realized that there's this problem that, and, and this is true for my books too, is that we can teach you the syntax of a language, but very rarely do we teach you wisdom. We can te- This is how a for loop works. This is how inheritance works. This is how whatever works. But we're not telling you how to use it because I've got 300 pages. So he ran this software class at Stanford where they try to focus on design and what makes design easy. And one of the interesting things was a group would work on a project and they'd have to hand it off to a different group and the other group would have to carry it forward. So you have to figure out how that second group is going to understand what you were trying to do. And I'm halfway through the book right now. He has a a few good talks on YouTube as well, but he is saying the best thing you can do is just reduce complexity, take out components. You have all probably been in DevOps hell where you have 10,000 different products who are trying to set up a Docker server inside a virtual machine on a Hyperblade, you know, whatever. It's how many layers of inception do you have here? If you can remove some of those those layers, things will be a little bit easier. I recommend it. The, the book's fantastic. It's very easy to read. It's It's really not that technical at all. And I mean, even with a little bit of shift, it, it could, he could be talking about anything. He could be talking about procurement. How can we easily procure things? We'll get rid of complexity. Why do you have to have seven layers of approval? So that's my thing. Find his talks on YouTube about this. I, I think you'll enjoy it. Awesome. Sounds terrific. Hey, Brian, if people want to connect with you online, see what you're sharing, see what you're teaching, where do they find you? I mean, usually people share like GitHub and Twitter, but there may be other places as well. So GitHub, I think my profile has my links to everything. My my, It's just, you know, Brian D. Foy. If you search for like Learning Pearl, there's my name and then you can, you'll find everything else. I post a couple things a week on Twitter, which is just Brian D. Foy underscore Pearl. I'm, I only really talk about Pearl, so you don't have to see what I ate this morning or, or what's going on <laughs> in New York or anything like that. Look at pictures of my cat or, or something. You'll pretty quickly find all that stuff if you hit those couple of places. Awesome. And if people want to pick up your Pearl books? Okay, so most of my books, well, actually, this isn't true anymore. O'Reilly has been my publisher for years and years and years. So Learning Pearl, Intermediate Pearl, Mastering Pearl, Programming Pearl. 
and when I say programming pro, like I helped Tom do the latest edition. I did the really boring bits and he did all the exciting stuff. But with Dave Cross, I've been doing this really interesting thing through his, his initiative called Pearl School. He wanted to take Markdown and quickly make EPUBs or PDFs that we could update very frequently. And, and he had a few of those. And so I said, hey, Dave, I want to try this. And so I think the first book I did was called Modulicious Web Clients. And I just updated that yesterday. I mean, it is so, so nice to be able to publish a book by saying make publish. And then it takes whatever your sources mm -hmm. are, makes the EPUB, makes the Mobi, makes the PDF, uploads it to various places, and then done. It takes three years to update a print book. This you, you can update overnight. And then since then, I've, I did another book called Learning Pearl Exercises, which were additional exercises for the Learning Pearl book, which is mostly there's an exercise, but then I have these really long detailed answers because I like going off on some of these questions and showing you like five different ways you could have done this. That's through Pearl School as well. And my latest one is called Pearl New Features. So a lot of people learned Pearl way back in the day, like five, eight. And that is what we target in, well, we don't really targeted in learning Perl, but we try to make things compatible because that's where people are. So I have this book that says from 5.10 up to the current version now is 5.34. Here's the things that have mm -hmm. changed. Here's the new features that have come in. You don't have to use them, but they're there. And if you know some Perl and you just need to catch up, you can check that out. Um, those are all sold through LeanPub, but go to pearlschool.com and you'll see all the stuff that Dave is doing with all that. There's a lot of good stuff, low prices because we, I mean, LeanPub gives us like 80% royalty, so we don't have to charge that much to make a few bucks. So, you know, still not going to pay the rent, but might pay for some streaming services or something. Another than that, if you put Brian and Pearl in Google, it's probably going to reach all, everything I'm doing. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll try and get links to as much of that as we can in the show notes. Uh, but thanks for coming. This was really, really interesting. And hopefully we help a few people go, oh yeah, I need to go check on my registrar. Yes. And then yeah, do take that all right the steps now. you put up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things that you don't think about until it's this giant headache all of a sudden. So, yeah. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. And until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.